Um, I hope. <laughs> when Jesus was born, one of the things that was said about him is that the government will be upon his shoulders. And Jesus is a political leader, and he is in the process of setting up a new government, and he is and will be the president. Now, when politicians aren't slamming one another and running negative political ads, they do have a platform that they run on, and they have slogans like no new taxes or jobs, 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 or health care for everyone or no more Obamacare. They all have a platform, and so does Jesus. And today we're in chapter 24 of this story, and this chapter has so much in it. His platform is so much bigger than we can cover today. We could probably study this chapter for months with the parable, the soil, the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, really some core accounts and teachings of Jesus. And if you want to get a thumbnail sketch of Jesus' teachings, this is really a great chapter for you to read. And when you read this chapter, you realize Jesus taught like no one else. He had power like no one else. He calmed the storm and did miracles and people were amazed and asked, who is this guy? He raised people from the dead like a little girl and Lazarus, and Lazarus was dead long enough to stink. He healed the blind, he cast out demons, multiplied the fish and the bread, walked on water, just no ordinary teacher and certainly no ordinary president. We cannot cover all of this, so I'm going to look at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount his first recorded speech, really after his baptism, is kind of like his inaugural speech, and it introduces Jesus' platform for his government and his kingdom. And if I were to suggest one block of scripture to memorize, it'd be these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, maybe during these three weeks of fasting, you can memorize one chapter a week if you're you know, somewhat energetic. But in this, we'll find the Lord's Prayer, the Golden Rule, the Wise Man, the Foolish Man, Salt of the Earth, the Light of the World, Do Not Judge, Love Your Enemy, Do Not Store Up Treasures in Heaven, Fasting, Prayer, Giving, Do Not Worry, Ask and It Will Be Given. Just many of the famous core teachings of Jesus are in these three chapters in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, some people were asked, why was this called the Sermon on the Mount? Some people in America were asked, and some thought it was because Jesus was on horseback when he gave it. Not true. He was actually on a mountain. And at the end of the sermon, Matthew 7, it says, After Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. This speech amazed the crowds back then, and it still has influence today. It inspired uh, Gandhi to revolution without violence. It inspired Martin Luther King to transform people from hate to love and change society through nonviolence. It's a super powerful message. It's kind of the I have a dream speech of Jesus. The first words of his platform are called the Beatitudes. There are eight sayings that all begin with the word blessed. And I want to read this starting Matthew 5. It's page 340 in the story. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, now I want to read this antiphonally. Okay, that means I say part of it and then you say part. I'm going to say the blessed part, the first half of the beatitude, and then I want you to read the last half. Okay, so I'll say blessed are the poor in spirit, and you'll say for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And do that with all eight of these, okay? Here we go. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Okay, everyone read with me. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Most commercials are beatitudes. Blessed are those who drive a Lexus. Blessed are those who use a certain beauty cream. Blessed are those who can solve their hemorrhoid problems. Blessed are those who take a certain pill if the side effects don't kill you. Blessed just means better off, fortunate. And and suppose we were to come up with a set of Beatitudes for the 21st century. What if we made a list of the kinds of people that we would consider fortunate in our culture by today's standards? It might read something like this. Blessed are the rich and famous because they can get a front row seat at a Bulls game. Blessed are the good looking for they'll be on the cover of People magazine. Blessed are those who can dunk a basketball, for they shall get a scholarship and maybe even make millions in the NBA. Blessed are the movers and shakers, for they shall make a name for themselves. Blessed are those who demand their rights, for they shall not be overlooked. Blessed are the healthy and fit, because they don't mind being seen in a bathing suit. Blessed are those who make it to the top, because they can look down on everyone else. Two weeks ago, I was working on this sermon. And a news item came out on the internet about uh, fashion designer Lorenz Scott. Maybe you probably read it. The girlfriend of Rolling Stones singer Mick Jagger found dead in her New York apartment on Monday from an apparent suicide. And the article said, Scott, a former model whose timeless style, modern, classic, and sexy fashions were favorites among A-list Hollywood stars such as Nicole Kidman, was found hanging from a scarf in her apartment. Most people before then would have said that she was blessed. Famous, beautiful, mover and shaker, successful, healthy, fit, made it to the top, made a lot of money. Now, I guess she was bankrupt, and she was, in more ways than one. One thing you will notice if you read the Sermon on the Mount, including these Beatitudes, is how countercultural Jesus' platform is, how he goes against just about everything you're going to hear from any politician or for any other message in the world today. Jesus' teachings are upside down. No one in their right mind would suggest that the poor or the more, the mourning or the meek are blessed. I mean, what kind of platform is that? How many votes would that get? So Jesus' platform is counter-cultural. And one of the main themes throughout the Bible is that God calls us to be counter-cultural, to be a holy people. Holy means different. We're set apart from the world around us. And when Israel went into the promised land, you remember that in the Old Testament, they were not supposed to be like the rest of the people in that land. They were to be different. So Jesus' platform goes against much of what you hear in the world today. One other thing about the word blessing. Blessed also carries the idea of approval. So blessed here probably means approved by God. These are the people who receive God's blessing. They'll inherit the earth, they'll be filled, they'll be comforted, and they will see God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, we would expect it being more sense to say blessed are the rich in spirit, those who are spiritual giants, those who pray and those who are pious and they know God. No, it's those who are poor in spirit, those who are lacking. In the Greek language, there were different words for poor, and the word for poor here is the desperately poor, the poorest of the poor, the destitute that have absolutely nothing. So this is a conscious understanding of our total unworthiness before God. I need help. So poor in spirit is my personal bankruptcy before God. The rich in spirit don't need Jesus. They're okay, they're moral, they're fine, they believe in God. You know people like that. And what Jesus is saying is before you can really have the kingdom and have God, you have to be empty. Those who declare spiritual bankruptcy, whose cupboards are bare, pockets are empty, all their options are gone, they don't brag, they beg. 
And until we become displeased with ourselves, we won't really see a need for God. You and I are helplessly, hopelessly addicted to destructive behavior. We are all depraved, and the worst of it, most of us don't think we are. We, we, don't, we aren't aware of it. We're deceived. And the first step to God is have those blinders taken off and realize, I am empty. It's like an alcoholic that hits bottom. And it's not accidental that this first beatitude is poor in spirit, and the first deadly sin is pride. Proverbs 16.5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. But the dominant beatitude for our society may very well be all about pride. Blessed are those who believe in themselves. Blessed are those who are self-confident, who are strong and powerful. Well, those are the people that put Jesus to death. Blessed are those who mourn. You can almost translate this. Happy are the unhappy. Really? I like to laugh. I I like a good joke. I like bad jokes. Um, So do you, some of you. Uh, No one likes a mourner. Mourners are wet blankets. And conventional, just common sense, conventional wisdom says happy people are happy. I mean, what's so great about weeping and crying and being sad? Well, Jesus wept over the sins of others. He wept when Lazarus died and he saw the result of a fallen world. He wept over people who were destroying themselves and others around them. Uh, The truth is there are some things that should cause us to weep. If I'm desperate and poor in spirit, if I have sin in my life, I should mourn that. It's one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it, but it's another thing to grieve over it and mourn over it. So the first beatitude is confession. The second is contrition. It's one thing to admit I'm empty, you know, up here in my head. It's another to really grieve it in here. I'm truly sorry. I grieve what sin is doing to me and to our world, what it's doing in me. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The meek. The opposite of meek probably be dominating or harsh. Meek can also be translated gentle, humility, or kindness. One of the qualities of elders is to be not domineering, someone who submits. With this one, I think of Abraham. He's willing to submit to God, willing to be led into a foreign land. He was patient. It took 25 years for him to receive the promise of an heir. He deferred to others. He let Lot have the best of the land. And yet, who inherited the land? It was Abraham. He was meek and submissive, and yet he was strong. There's an organization called Dependent Order of Really Meek and Timid Souls, and if you take the first letters of its name, make an acrostic, what's it spell? Doormats. Get it? See? And the doormats it's, have an official insignia called, it's a yellow caution light, and their official motto is, the meek shall inherit the earth if that's okay with everybody. It's a tongue-in-cheek type of group, of course. Upton Dixon founded the society after he wrote a pamphlet called Cower Power. Now, I'm not sure exactly if that's what Jesus had in mind here. Meekness is not just weakness. I like the phrase that meekness is strength under control. See, an elder is strong, but they're not domineering. They're under control. The meek don't have an overbearing need for power or desire to use other people for their own gain. Blessed are the humble. They will inherit the earth. Blessed are the hungry. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, we don't experience real hunger and thirst in our society some of you will experience uh, it to a certain extent during these 21 days of fasting. You, know, you skip a meal and your mouth starts to water and the juices in your glands start gushing out and your stomach growls and you feel a twisting in your abdomen. You get headaches. You might even start feeling weak. But one of the big things about hunger is it's hard to concentrate on anything but your hunger. And that's part of the reason for fasting. It reminds you to think about why you're hungering. Uh, but you might see a lemon meringue pie on the counter and 
That's how you can think about it. Wherever you go, you just think about that meringue, meringue pie in the back of your mind, and it just grows and gets bigger and bigger and can be 10 foot in diameter, weighs 45 pounds, and because you just hunger and desire for food. So hunger and thirsting is a craving for righteousness. It's a vivid word picture of an urgent desire for it. I want to be in line with God. It's always on my mind. It dominates. Righteousness is not just a nice thing to do. It's something I can't live without. Blessed are those who desperately crave righteousness. They see the bad in the world. They, they see the bad in their own lives, and they so badly want to change it. Most people want righteousness, but few, but few are starving for it. We admire it, but we're not hungry for it. There's some who don't hunger for righteousness because they think they already have it. Well, I'm a good guy. I'm a good life. Got a good, nice family. I'm a good mom, good dad. I don't have any hunger pains. And they don't need anything else. And they don't know that they're hungry. So blessed are those who recognize their need for righteousness because they will run to Jesus and be filled with God's righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. They recognize their need for mercy and they give it to others. Happy are the forgiving. We could put this one. Cursed are the grudge holders. I read about an estranged couple in a bitter divorce and the two that were once filled with love were now filled with hatred. And in the settlement, the husband was directed by the judge to sell assets and turn over half the proceeds to the wife. And he did. Sold his car, which was worth about $20,000. Sold it for $100 and gave 50 to the wife. Sold the furniture worth thousands of dollars and for a few bucks gave half to his wife. He systematically did that with every asset. Now, he could not show mercy. Now, of course, he didn't get away with it, but he could not show mercy. Unhappy are the grudge holders. Unhappy are those who cannot forgive. They're the ones that are enslaved. If you can't give mercy, you won't receive mercy because it's shown you haven't been able to receive it. You don't understand the depth of your poverty, spiritual poverty. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. When the heart is filled with anger, lust, greed, or pride, you can't see God. Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy presence? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is not very optimistic about the human heart. It says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. Jesus' assessment of the heart is not very positive. But in, in spite of that, he insists on the pure in heart. They're the one that will see God. But the trick... The, the nasty uh, truth is we don't have a pure heart, none of us. So how do you get it? First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Purity is a gift from Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart because they've been cleansed by God and they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. A peacemaker reconciles people to God or people to one another. Jesus was called the Prince of Peace, reconciling God in humans. And when we do the work of reconciliation, when we bring people to God, we're peacemakers. When we have people forgiving one another, when we uh, initiate that, we're doing the work of God. Now, this was a Jewish audience. And most, many of you know that behind the word peace is not just the absence of conflict, but the Jewish word for peace is shalom which is completeness and well-being. So it's not just the abolition of warfare, it's the creation of welfare, seeking healing and wholeness that was intended by the Creator. So blessed are those who bring reconciliation and wholeness to people, for they shall be called the sons of God. And then the last one, blessed are the persecuted. Doesn't seem to fit. But if Jesus is your president and you live by his platform, you will not fit in. What did they do to Jesus? See, one thing I've come to realize in, in working with teenagers 
is the extreme amount of peer pressure that they're under. And peer pressure is something we all experience, but especially teens. And to follow God when most of your peers and friends are not is extremely difficult. And the Beatitudes are calling all of us to an alternative lifestyle, to be different, to be peculiar. So I have down here, under persecuted, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. You will not fit. Hobby Lobby, you're going to pay a big price because of your convictions. You're going to be persecuted. I like what John Ortberg says. He said, Jesus promised those who would follow him only three things. That they'd be absurdly happy, entirely fearless, and always in trouble. You are going to be persecuted. But Jesus says, rejoice. Your reward is in heaven. You've got something to look forward to. Plus, persecution confirms that you're a child of God. You're going to be like the prophets before you. Are you persecuted? Congratulations. That puts you in the same class as Daniel and Moses. Are you ridiculed? Then you're like Jeremiah. Is your morality unpopular? So is John the Baptist. Are are you even unpopular in the church among some, some of God's people? Well, that describes just about every prophet in the Old Testament. So this is Jesus' platform. These these are some foundational elements of his presidency. And let me be honest, I don't fully understand these Beatitudes. I, I just don't know. Here's the thing I do know. The people we laud and that we strive to emulate and that are featured on the covers of popular magazines are not the fulfilled, happy, balanced persons we might imagine. Many of the people we would judge successful are miserable, egotistical, and abusive. I also see a progression in these Beatitudes. If I'm going to get into the kingdom, I must first of all be poor in spirit, recognize my emptiness. And realizing that, I mourn. I grieve my spiritual poverty. So I humble myself and become meek, realizing I need a higher power. And since I'm empty, I want to be filled with Jesus' righteousness, so I hunger and thirst for his righteousness, for God's way to come into me. And the only way for that to happen is for God to be merciful to me. And so I become merciful because God's mercy has come upon me. God took me out of the gutter, and I don't want to go back into that, so I want a pure heart. And that pure heart makes me a son of God, so I have peace with God, and I want peace with others, so I become a peacemaker. And because of all these are so out of character and so countercultural and so strange, I will go through persecution. But I'm also going to rejoice because great is my reward. I think if I summarize Jesus' platform, it would be in one word, grace. The one thing that separates Christianity and Jesus Christ from all other religions, all other leaders, all other politicians, is grace. All other religions about what we do, got to try harder, man reaching God. Christianity is the opposite. You can't do anything. Look at Jesus' ministry. Who was open to his grace? It wasn't the super spiritual. It was the spirit and woman, the prodigal son, the demon possessed, the blind, the deaf, the tax collectors. Those are the ones who receive the blessing. And then in the 4th century, 400 years after Jesus, when Rome made Christianity the favored religion and gave the church power and prestige and some uh, political pluses, that's when the church's decline began. The powerful do not inherit the earth. They are enslaved to to the earth. And how about at home? Are Are the domineering and harsh, the blessed ones at home? How's that working for you? Paul said in 2 Corinthians, having nothing but possessing everything. So the Beatitudes are saying, among many things, it's okay to not be okay. In fact, it's necessary to not be okay. Grace is required. We could put a sign out at the entrances of our building, shoes and socks not required. Grace is. 
Some people say, well, I can't come to church till I get my life together. Or the church is full of hypocrites. Yeah, that's true. Or if you knew me or what I've done, you wouldn't want me. These beatitudes that no one is bad enough to not receive grace. It's okay to not be okay. We're all desperate and destitute. Who's approved by God? The desperate, the hungry, the grieving, the meek. Yours is the kingdom. It's offered to all, but only the empty can receive it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we're all bankrupt and desperately empty. And blessed are those who are, for theirs is the kingdom. Lord, we vote for Jesus. He's the only leader who can truly bring peace and blessing and shalom. And we come to him just as we are, broken and yet hopeful, hungry and yet being filled. And our praise goes to him. And this prayer is said in his name, in Jesus' name. Will you all stand as we continue worshiping the Lord this morning? I want to teach you guys a new song today. It's called Scandal of Grace.